critical thinking is an urgent need, not just for the church, but also for the wider world. We need to be able to think clearly and to think well. In fact, all of us are already thinking right now at this moment. People ask questions for lots of different reasons. And if you think about the beliefs that you hold, the ideas that you think are true, you will hold those beliefs for many different reasons. And so critical thinking is part of the way that we journey or explore what we believe, but it's also important to recognize that as human beings, we have a whole range of different reasons that are deep down in the heart, in our feelings, in our experience and our relationships that also factor into and affect the way we come to judgments. It would be naive to teach critical thinking and to talk about logic and to pretend that man were able to in some way be completely neutral with his use of logic or critical thinking. We're not as neutral as we like to think we are sometimes. So what is this critical thinking, clear thinking? What does it mean? How do we begin to use it? Well, it really means just being careful with reasoning, being careful with thinking. At the core of critical thinking, it's an, a, a, a range of different skills that include reading carefully, writing well, but it, at the core of critical thinking is logical thinking, thinking in a logical or a systematic way. Well, that sounds a bit philosophical, you're probably thinking, but actually it's something that all of us are doing right at the moment. Logic is what tells you that it makes more sense to have a shower after you have done sport rather than before. Logic and critical thinking is what tells you that if you're here in this room and you're accused of a crime somewhere else at the same time that required you to have to be there to commit that crime, then actually you can't have done it. Logic is what tells you that if you've arranged to meet somebody in a particular place at a particular time and they're not there, then there must have been some confusion about the place that you were meant to meet or the time, or they've become delayed in some sort of way. Logic is what tells you, really, how to think in the everyday of life. Logic is the maths of life, and critical thinking is the way of applying that maths into common sense, everyday thinking. Critical thinking is the use of logic in life. And actually, we need logic. Logic helps us test out what we believe. It helps us examine and think through the authorities that we listen to or that we grant. It teaches us what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. And it builds the habit of thinking in an orderly way. We need logic to explore and test the world that we're in. Logic actually can aid faith too. Logic is not the opposite of faith, as many think it is. And the Christian faith is actually deeply pro-logic and pro-critical thinking. Jesus was a black belt in logic. He was an absolute master of the question that would lay open the logical assumptions of the questioner. And Christian faith is not itself anti-evidence or anti-logic or anti-reason. In fact, if the resurrection of the dead did not happen, if the resurrection of Jesus from the dead did not happen, then Christians are to be pitied and are to be really, really sad because actually it's all meaningless. That isn't 
as it would sound, a quote from a French existentialist philosopher. That's actually a quote from the Bible, from the book of Corinthians, chapter 15. If that event didn't happen, it doesn't matter how you feel or what you need. The hard concrete of reality doesn't care and will not flex. On the other hand, if that event happened, if the resurrection of Jesus really took place, then what I do, what I feel, what I want, doesn't really affect whether or not that resurrection is true or not. It would still be true even if I wasn't aware of it or refused it for some reason or another. As we learn to think well, we need to learn to handle ideas. And this means understanding how we talk about ideas, even religious and political ones, without being belligerent or overly defensive. We need to learn to talk about ideas in a way that is more careful than injecting all those strong emotions into it. In fact, when something is put to you with a very, very strong emotional appeal or a strong amount of passion behind it, you might feel inspired by it, but you also may find that you might be less convinced about what is actually being offered to you and on the basis that it's being offered to you. Sometimes passion being put in a view can not just be a sign of authenticity, it can also be a sign of actually somebody trying to pull the wool over your eyes and stop you seeing that they're hiding logical manoeuvres that don't make sense underneath. So what principles should we start with if we want to do good critical thinking in the church, outside the church, in the world, in public? Well, I think we'd start with this, that arguments don't have to involve anger and we can disagree with each other without being disagreeable. People, no, regardless of who they are or where they're born or what they believe are all equal. People are all of equal value and worth. People are actually of a deep value and dignity and worth. However, ideas are not all equal. Imagine, for example, let's take the idea of tolerance. Imagine if I saw somebody in the back row picking their nose as I speak to you. Well, it would be pretty um, intolerant of me, perhaps, to point them out, to offer them a tray of dips and different flavourings to go with their little dessert helping that they're having. That would be outrageous for me to point that out and to expose them and embarrass them. However, if I noticed that a ninja clad in black with a sword jumped into the back of the room, pulled out his sword and quietly and stealthily, as only a ninja can, began to quietly kill people in the back row. Well, I might say, I'm a tolerant sort of guy. I'll just let the ninja do what ninjas do. Some ideas are just bad ideas, aren't they? While people are equal, ideas are not. Some ideas are better than other ideas. People deserve equal respect and value, but some ideas are just bad ideas. There's a problem. We live in a world of ideas. There are ideas all around us, all of the time. Advertising, the drama and the arts are around us, the culture supplies us with ideas, the radio. There are ideas flying around us all of the time. We're bombarded with messages constantly. And it's good to be able to spot some of the tricks that advertisers might be using to try to persuade us to take a particular view. I wonder when you watch an advert or an advertisement, when you see a commercial for something, whether you ever ask the question, how is the advertiser trying to persuade me to buy the product? What trick are they using? What persuasive device are they using to try to get me to buy the product? 
It was pretty clear 60 years ago in advertising that you just simply laid out the benefits of the product. Now advertising offers you an identity that goes along with the product. We might say that sometimes advertisers try to associate an identity with the product. If I buy that perfume or if I drive that car, then I'll be the kind of person who's shown in the adverts or the commercials driving that car or using that fragrance. There's a problem though with that trick, that just because I associate something with something doesn't mean the thing that I, the product, it becomes valuable. It just means that I've associated it with something that people perceive to be valuable. It doesn't actually mean that the product is of any use whatsoever. It might just be complete hot air. It might be useless. And just standing next to things that are true or valuable doesn't make something valuable. There's another trick that sometimes uses, and that's the trick of illustration or a story. Now, a story is a really important way to communicate something. It can show us all sorts of human dynamics and values that we wouldn't otherwise be able to glimpse if it was just a dry philosophical exploration or an analysis of a topic. And a story can bring something alive. The problem is, is that a story, a good story, doesn't make something true. You could tell a really good story about something that was fundamentally false or mistaken, and it wouldn't make that thing true or correct. Think of the often rehearsed advertisement for hair colouring, for example. The lady walking along the road sees a pair of shoes that she wants in a shoe shop, a pair of lovely red shoes. She looks through the window at the shoes, and behind she sees a very stern-looking sales lady who is giving her a strange look. She doesn't quite have the confidence at that point in her life to go in and buy the shoes. But when she uses a particular hair product, let's say nice and easy hair colouring, she then begins to have this new confidence. She walks into the clothes shop, she buys the shoes, she stares down the scary lady and she walks out of the clothes shop or the shoe shop looking like a supreme paragon of streetwalk confidence. She's suddenly a different person. But just because we've told a story that's attractive, that is something that's exciting, doesn't mean that actually the product is a good product. It just means it's an interesting, exciting story. It might cause us to look more into the product, but it doesn't make it a good product. Illustrations don't really tell us much about the truth or falsity of something. So what else could we do when we think about the tricks that people use to try to persuade us? Here's another example of a message that you will sometimes see as you drive around, perhaps, in your country or in your situation. Sometimes you might see the message, don't drink and drive. That's a message we have by the motorway in the United Kingdom. You're driving along, you see in red letters on a sign the message saying, don't drink and drive. Now, what does that mean? That means don't drink and drive. But how, what's the trick that's being used to persuade you to take that seriously? What's the trick? I would say that's an assertion. It's trying to persuade you to agree by asserting. It's often a government sign, and so it comes with a sort of authority sort of look to the sign, and you're persuaded, perhaps, or you're invited to agree on the basis of the assertion. There's a big difference between an assertion and an argument. There's a massive difference between an assertion and an argument. With an assertion, you don't generally give your reasoning or show your working for how you've come to your conclusion. With an argument, you lay out the reasons and you explain how and why you've come to the conclusion that you've come to. So take that statement, don't drink and drive. That's an assertion. But what might be the argument behind it? It might be something like this. Don't drink and drive. 
Drinking and driving is dangerous. You should avoid doing dangerous things. Therefore, you should avoid drinking and driving. It's just laying out the logic that's assumed, but it invites a conversation. If I share my reasoning and I show, if I share the premises or the claims about reality that support my conclusion, then I'm going to invite a conversation. And that's the way to begin with critical thinking. It's about an openness, a generousness, and saying, I don't just want to illustrate something so you believe it because it's a nice picture. I don't just want to associate value to something so you agree with what I'm saying because it's next to other things that you value. I don't just want to assert it either because I want to value you and I want to value your ability to think. So I'm going to lay out my reasoning so we can explore that reasoning together. And that invites a totally different type of conversation. Assertions quite often lead to rows and lead to disagreements. They're open to misunderstanding quite often because the person can't really see how you've got there. But an argument demands conversation. It opens a dialogue. An argument typically would have a couple of statements that lead through to a conclusion. Those statements are claims about the nature of reality, or we might say truth claims or premises. They're premises or truth claims about reality. And then that argument and the premises will work forward and work through to a conclusion. And if the conclusion follows logically from the premises, then we would say that it's a valid or a sound argument. A sound argument is what philosophers call a, a good argument. And it's important that we know how to recognise sound arguments or good arguments and unsound arguments. Here are the three important tests of a sound argument. First of all, are the premises, are the truth claims true? Are they generalisations or are they accurate to the way reality is? Secondly, is there valid logic? Is, does the conclusion actually follow logically from the premises? And thirdly, do the words used in the premises in the statements, do those words communicate the correct meaning across or are they ambiguous? Is there a sense of a murky meaning that's going on in there? So a sound argument, if we're thinking about critical thinking, we're thinking at the core about logic and we're thinking about arguments rather than assertions, and sound arguments must have true premises, valid logic, and unambiguous premises and words. Let's just explore that idea of ambiguity for a moment. The comedian Groucho Marx makes the statement, it's a good pun, he says, One morning I shot an elephant in my pyjamas. Who was wearing the pyjamas, we wonder? Was he wearing the pyjamas when he shot an elephant? Or was the elephant wearing pyjamas when he shot it? There's an ambiguity operating there. Then we must deal with um, we must deal with invalid logic. Consider this argument. Premise one: high fat foods are bad for you. Premise two: some yogurt is high in fat. Premise three or conclusion: therefore all yogurt is bad for you. That's gone from some to all, and it's an example of invalid logic. I wonder if you spotted it as I said it. There's something about it that doesn't feel right, but it just doesn't work to go from some yoghurt to all yoghurt. That's invalid logic. The conclusion does not follow logically from the premises.
And the third thing to look out for are false premises. Here's an example of false premises. Premise one, I only ate the broken biscuits. Premise two, broken biscuits contain no calories. Conclusion, therefore, I have eaten no calories. The problem is, is that premise two, sadly, is clearly untrue. Broken biscuits do contain calories. And so, therefore, the, this argument would be unsound because it has false, a false premise. Okay, now, we might talk about different types of logical fallacies. Self-contradictions are an example. This is where a statement fails to satisfy its own conditions for ration, rationality or truthfulness. For example, if I was to say, I cannot speak a word of English, you would immediately know that that was false because it's self-accepting or self-refuting. Here's another example. I'm not able to construct a sentence. Here's another one. There is no such thing as truth. If I say there is no such thing as truth, then I'm expecting you actually to take that seriously. I think I would believe it is true if I was putting forward that view. Here's another one that we might hear fairly frequently. You should never believe anything without empirical or laboratory evidence. Now, it's not the case that we have a laboratory test or empirical evidence to justify that statement. There is no lab test to prove that you can only know things that you prove in labs. And therefore, it is a self-accepting or a self-refuting statement. And if a statement is self-contradictory, it can't be true. Another example of a, false of a logical fallacy would be a false dilemma. Richard Dawkins provides a great example of somebody who presents a false dilemma. He says, either <clears throat> it is time for people of intellect as opposed to people of faith to stand up and say enough. Well, he seems to polarise intellect and faith and not recognise that there's a third or fourth option where intellect and rationality work together with faith, as actually, I would argue, has been the dominant position of the church for 2,000 years. A false dilemma restricts the field of options so that you're only offered a limited range of choices. There are a whole load of logical fallacies that it's important to think about. Let me, in conclusion, say this. We've looked at some mistakes in thinking. We've looked at the aim of being people, hopefully as human beings, who are interested in knowing reality and knowing the truth. We want to know what's true and real. Critical thinking provides us with a way to begin to explore what's real and true about the world. But in a culture of information, rich with all sorts of messages and the hyper-connected nature of modern life, we need to learn how to think. We need to teach each other how to think. We need to give society and the wider public world the tools of thinking that I think fall very naturally out of a Christian understanding of real persuasive faith. Religion should be invited into the public square in society because those questions that can be asked in the public square are often off limits within the religious communities. And so religion should be invited into public life. If it's real, it will stand up to scrutiny and questions. Christianity has nothing to fear from logic and critical thinking, simply because real authentic faith cares about real things like integrity and honesty and facts. It would be pretty strange for a faith to extol these virtues but require the opposite of them 
in its initial impulse. So there are many different kinds of reasons that we believe things. There are many roads into the heart, says G.K. Chesterton. We expect others to listen to the truth when we present it. We expect to seek, to find the truth, to search for it. But are we willing to do the same ourselves? Where do you and I need to respond to the truth and the reality that's been revealed or shown to us in our lives? Thank you very much.